Tara Corinne Safeli. I'm a certified health coach. I'm a published author, and I help people heal their relationships with food and their bodies. I also have an academy called the Embodied Rebel Academy that teaches other women how to become transformational food and body image coaches. It not only teaches you all about diet culture, anti-diet culture, as well as transformational coaching modalities and skills, like actually how to facilitate a transformation. Like how is it that I get my clients from food obsession to food freedom and from body hatred to body acceptance. And it also teaches you how to lay the foundation for a business, essentially teaching you how I got my business off the ground. It's an incredibly unique academy and I love doing that so that is something that I am also doing these days so if you're listening and you are interested in being a food and body image coach shoot me a dm to learn more or just stay tuned to my instagram where I will be talking about it more in the coming months Um, again based on when this episode is going live in September if you are not following me on instagram go go follow me what are you doing go hit me up. Let's be friends. I'm at Kara's Kitchen, Kara with a C, Kitchen with a K. And today on the podcast, we are interviewing one of my favorite researchers. Her name is A. Janet Tomoyama, or Dr. T for short. She is an associate professor at UCLA in health psychology and social psychology departments with a focus on eating behavior, stress, obesity, dieting, comfort eating, and weight stigma, among other topics. And when I've been doing my own research over the years, educating myself on these topics, and I would be reading research papers, I kept seeing Janet's name at the top of the papers. And I realized like, okay, she's a leading expert in this field. She has conducted so many of the studies that I utilize to support me in helping my clients with a transformation and to help them having a shift in perspective, as well as the women in the Embodied Rebel Academy or the ERA for short, when they're wanting to become teachers of this this science and this literature as well. And I thought, you know what, I'd really love to chat with her. I'd love to get her on the podcast to talk about her research, what she studies. So we talk about how and why weight stigma actually drives the so-called obesity epidemic and harms health, which is opposite to what our society is opposite to the dominant narrative in society we talk about how she actually feels and what she thinks based on what she's learned about the so-called obesity epidemic we talk about stress and how dieting is stressful and how stress contributes to weight gain we talk about the various things that contribute to where we fall on the BMI scale, why it's so difficult to lose weight, what's going on with the medical system and why it's so fat phobic and a place where people experience a ton of weight stigma. And she goes into her research around those, the small percentage of people who quote, have success with dieting. And she actually goes into what she's found in her research to explain why some people quote, have success and how that actually keeps the overall dominant narrative alive that, you know, dieting works when really for the vast majority of people, it doesn't. So it's an incredible episode. If you are interested in any of those topics, I really think that you are going to enjoy it today and find it very insightful. And if you're, if you're liking these topics, you'll probably have some aha 
wow, jaw-opening, no-way moments as I did when I was interviewing her. So to give you a bit more information about Janet or Dr. T, she, again, is the professor of psychology at UCLA, where she heads up the Dieting, Stress, and Health, aka DISH Lab. You can learn more at dishlab.org. She went to Cornell for her undergrad, graduating in 2001, and got her doctorate in psychology from UCLA, graduating in 2009. Her work has been recognized by early career awards from national organizations like the Association for Psychological Science and has received wide media coverage from outlets like USA Today, LA Times, BBC News, NPR, and even The Onion. Her research focuses on the harmful health consequences of stress, dieting, and fat shaming. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If you get a lot out of this episode, or if you are getting a lot out of the podcast in general, be sure to share it with a friend or someone in your life who you think would also benefit from this message. Share it on your Instagram stories or leave a ratings review, ratings and review on iTunes. That really helps keep the podcast going. And by you sharing it with people, you have an opportunity to change somebody's life. And that's pretty awesome, you know? All right, let's get into, into today's pod. So you're an associate professor at UCLA in the health psychology and social psychology departments. You have a focus on eating behavior, stress, obesity, dieting, comfort eating, weight stigma, among other things. So like all the things we talk about on this podcast. I'm curious, how did you end up in this area of study and is it what you planned on? Yeah, it is and it isn't, it's a good question. Um, I first got really interested in studying eating when I was uh, actually a uh, college student and um, I was learning about, you know, the different risks people incur for eating disorders and people are too focused on, um, you know, trying to maintain an impossibly thin body and sort of societal pressures to have a really thin body. And I was um, thinking back to my childhood in Japan. I went to an international school um, all growing up. And at school, we were learning, you know, like you should never say unkind words about other people's bodies. Um, but at home in Japanese culture, and I think a lot of your, especially East Asian listeners will relate to this, um, like it's practically a greeting in Japan, like, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, you've gained weight, you know, or like, oh, hi, oh, you've lost weight. You look, you look much better. Um, and so initially I was thinking, well, how does everyone in Japan not have an eating disorder given this like unchecked level of attention on people's bodies. Um, and so that was what really initially stoked my interest. Um, but as I um, sort of went along my research journey, um, I realized that having a eating disorder specific focus was um, really inspiring and interesting. But if I wanted to sort of do research that affected the largest number of people, then I thought it would be important to broaden out more to um, eating and dieting um, and obesity, which I'll put in quotes and we'll talk later about obesity and, you know, um, what I think about that, I'm sure. Um, and so that really took me into a field called health psychology, which I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. It's a newer branch of psychology where we study the way 
people think and feel and behave and how those things affect actually physical health. Um, and so through sort of a health psychology lens, I got interested in um, dieting, low calorie dieting, especially because it seemed clear to me that nobody likes dieting. It's an awful experience for everyone. And for most people, it didn't really seem to work. The weight seems to just come right back. Um, and so that was kind of the first puzzle we tried to unravel when I was in grad school, especially does, does dieting work? Um, and all the evidence points to no, doesn't lead to long-term weight loss. And so then finally, at one point I was like, well, why do people diet if it's horrible and no one likes it and everyone seems to kind of understand that it doesn't really work for the long term. Um, and that brought me to my current work in weight stigma. It seemed really clear to me that given societal pressure to be thin and um, these, this societal value placed on thinner bodies that makes fat bodies, you know, some sort of an abomination that we need to get rid of at, at all costs. You know, when that's what the societal climate is, you could definitely see why people would run towards any diet, you know, to sort of escape that stigmatized condition. So that's sort of like the roller coaster ups and downs that got me to where I am today. Yeah. Do you, I feel like you are in some, in some regards, a pioneer in this, in this, um, area of study. I know we have Abigail Segui who also teaches at UCLA. UCLA. Yeah. And Lindo Bacon has done a lot of work in this area and Lucy, Lucy Affamore as well, among others. Um, how many years have you really been studying this? Cause I feel like still the, like, do you think that most people know diets don't work, that they don't lead to long-term sustainable weight loss? Or do you still feel like that's something that the general public is not aware of? Well, first of all, thank you for calling me a pioneer. That really <laughs> makes me smile. <laughs> um, and yes, you know, Sagi, Bacon, Aframore, these are leaders in the field who've been at it way longer than I have. Um, I would say my weight stigma work's been going on about 10 years or so. So maybe 10, 11 years. And so it's been, you know, a long road. Do people understand that dieting doesn't work? I think it's tricky because dieting does work initially. You know, everyone has their honeymoon period with their diets. They're, the weight's coming off initially. It's really that maintenance part that's tough for people. And when you look at graphs of weight regain in these diet studies, it's like the same in every single study. It's like a curve that goes down initially with the weight going down and then it just creeps right back up. So I think maybe people think, you know, this time if I have enough discipline and willpower, maybe this will be the diet where the weight stays off forever. And there are just too many forces conspiring to make that, you know, an easy reality for people. Yeah. Can you go into some of those forces? Like, can you actually go into some of the science? Like, why does the weight come back on and, and why is it so hard? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, our bodies are evolutionarily designed perfectly to keep us alive. And so whenever your body is hitting starvation mode, it doesn't know that that starvation is because you're trying to get thinner. It thinks, OMG, we're in a famine. We have to hang on to every single calorie that comes in our bodies. 
Um, and so that's why you can, you see these dramatic changes in metabolic rate. Um, people who are dieting, their brains are functioning in different ways that make you really crave high fat, high sugar, high calorie foods. And when you eat them, they taste really good. Um, and so there's like so many physiological things that kick in once you start um, restricting the amount of food coming into your body. One of my earliest papers showed that dieting is actually stressful, meaning that it triggers the release of stress hormones in your body. And ironically, one of the jobs of one of these stress hormones called cortisol, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, the stress hormone cortisol, its job is to make your body deposit fat, in, especially in the belly region. It, it drives you to be hungrier and eat more food. And then when you do eat, it makes your brain really, really responsive to the sugary, um, fatty, sort of high calorie aspects of food. And so, you know, you're getting it from all sides. And this is, you know, layered on top of genetics that kind of really um, play a large role in the size of your body. A lot of people don't realize this, but your um, weight is about as heritable as your height. And yet we're not blaming people for being short or tall. Um, people seem to understand the impact of genetics on height. But, but when it comes to weight, it seems to all be about this personal responsibility, controllability kind of message. Yeah, I have a couple of, of like, I want to put a couple pins in a few of the things that you had said. So the first question I have is like, you had mentioned cortisol has this, one of the roles of cortisol is to support our body in storing more fat, particularly you said around the belly. So why does cortisol do that? Um, and then my next question is, why do we, why do you think our society is so attached to this personal responsibility? And why do we believe that our weight is in our control when it really is not any more in our control than our height? Like, how do we get there? Or why do we still believe that? So those are the two questions. Yes. Uh, and each of those could be an entire podcast. Um, if you think about why, why do we experience stress in the first place, it's not just a random thing that our body does. Um, our body doesn't just, didn't just decide to stress out one day and because it seemed like a good idea. It was really, again, finely evolutionarily tuned to help us survive. So in our evolutionary past, the stressors that we encountered were mostly physical stressors. So, you know, um, a saber-toothed tiger chasing us, for example. And so in our evolutionary past, most of the stressors that we encountered required huge amounts of energy, um, either to fight or to flee and run away. And so what cortisol is doing is uh, a process called gluconeogenesis, which just means it's bringing sugar out of um, where it's stored um, so that it can be used by your big muscles to run away. Nowadays, though, most of our stressors are psychological. So even though there's no saber-toothed tiger, it's just worrying about coronavirus, for example your body is still flushing itself with glucose and that glucose has nowhere to go. And so it is um, getting ultimately stored, as we said, as fat in that belly region. 
And so if you think about stress as like this um, energy challenge, then it makes much more sense why these hormones would be doing the things that they're doing. And it's really kind of a mismatch between the stressors we encounter now, which are mostly psychological, um, and the stressors we used to encounter. And then to sort of make things worse, the stressors we encounter now, they're psychological, but they're also more chronic. So in the past, you know, the saber-toothed tiger comes, it either eats us or we survive and that's it. So that's, you know, at most, hopefully an hour. Um, and yet COVID, we're going on what, four or five months. Um, and so not only is it, you know, not using up the energy that's been freed, but it's also continually running the stress response over and over and over again. And that's really not good for our bodies. Um, as for your second question, that's the harder one. Like, why is our society so attached to this idea that weight is controllable? Um, and, you know, some of this is really in the wheelhouse of anthropologists and sociologists and historians, and they could tell you things like, um, especially, you know, in the United States, there's this like Puritan ideal. Um, it's all about hard work and um, making things happen through diligence and control. And so some of that bleeds into this notion that, you know, we can control everything, including our weight. Um, and I think it also links back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, where you do see short-term weight losses due to, you know, temporary feats of willpower and self-control. And so I think that kind of tricks people into thinking um, that it is possible. And then when they regain the weight, they're really placing the blame on themselves rather than all the different things we talked about that you know conspire to make you um, gain weight. Some we didn't even talk about, like the toxic food environment. This is you know a term people use to. Uh, it was coined by Kelly Brownell initially to talk about how like the foods that are on the grocery store shelves have been engineered within an inch of their life to make you eat them and crave them and eat more. Um, they've been engineered to be super cheap, so way less expensive than some of these um, more whole foods that will, you know, uh, lead to better metabolic health. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a certain amount of people buying into this idea. Uh, and so it just kind of makes things worse. One of the things that I found most interesting from you that I've learned from you is the impact that stress has on weight. I didn't really know that stress was such a potential cause of weight gain. And it makes me think about stress eating and how we can eat if we're stressed. And then if we're struggling with our body image, we're stressed because we eat. And so it's sort of like this negative cycle. Can you like, is stress eating pathological? Um, and it, like, is it a problem, I guess, yeah. from your perspective? This is like a really complicated question that I've been chasing down also for about a decade um, with way less success <laughs> with my weight stigma work, I have to say. Um, and so one really interesting thing that I didn't know is that um, we're not the only species to do stress eating. So 
um, if you take mice or rats, I can't remember which one it is, um, and you stress them out and you give them access to high sugar, high fat comfort foods. So in, in the rodent models, the comfort foods are usually Crisco mixed with sugar um, or some get Oreo cookies. <laughs> um, so when you give those rodents comfort foods, you see that their actual physiological stress systems get dampened down. So they're, they're releasing less of their version of cortisol, it's called corticosterone. Um, if you put them in scary situations, you see that they act way more chill than, than the rodents that haven't gotten this comfort food. And so that really made me think, okay, so it's, at least in these other species, it seems like comfort eating or stress eating is really serving a purpose. It's actually working to soothe the body's stress systems. And so I did some early work looking in humans to see like, could this also be the case in humans? And we found some evidence showing that humans that um, have, that engage in high levels of stress eating do show lower levels of stress hormones. Um, and so that was kind of encouraging, but we also saw in humans, and you see this in the rodents as well, that they develop a little fat pad in the belly region. Um, and so, you know, I was like, okay, so stress eating sort of a double-edged sword where it could contribute to metabolic problems because, you know, most of the comfort foods people are reaching for are Crisco mix of sugar or Oreo cookies. Um, but, you know, if it's, if it's helping a person manage their emotions in the moment, like maybe that's not something that we should be necessarily like wagging our fingers at and being like, you shouldn't do that. You know, that's bad for your health. Um, and so I've been really struggling against this exact question you asked, which is, is stress eating a, a pathological? Is it a bad thing? And the most recent study that we did, which um, is currently undergoing peer review, um, is where we tried to kind of hack comfort eating to maybe be done in a more health promoting way. So we had people either um, comfort eat um, some sort of fruit or veggie or randomly assigned um, eat sort of a traditional comfort food. And it was a fun study because we had people tell us exactly what their favorite comfort food was. So if it was like Ben and Jerry's chubby hubby ice cream, like that's what we got for them to eat. And we stressed them out using this um, quite frightening laboratory stressor. Um, and what we found is that the fruits and veggies were just as soothing as Ben and Jerry's ice cream in terms of dampening stress responses. Um, but we also found that the group that did nothing at all, the control group, their stress went down also. So we were like, what do we make of these findings? It seems like you know, stress eating, the classic kind of comfort eating of ice cream is working uh, to dampen stress, but also so are fruits and veggies and also so is nothing. So maybe it's a myth that, you know, that comfort food has to be, you know, a huge thing of mac and cheese or, you know, like chocolate cake, like maybe other foods can get you there as well. Um, but I still think that's 
a tough sell for people to be like, oh, are you stressed? You should eat a carrot (laughs) instead of carrot cake. So we most recently have done a study where we try and kind of hack people's um, sort of try and life hack them to a place where they can get to where um, fruits and veggies can be comforting. So in that study, we had people do this five-minute exercise called progressive muscle relaxation. It's been shown in dozens of studies to like reliably induce relaxation and stress relief. And every time we had them do that, we also had them eat um, a fruit. So let's pretend it's a strawberry. So they would do the relaxation and eat the strawberry and they would do the relaxation and eat the strawberry over and over and over again with the hope that you could then just pop a strawberry and your body would automatically be conditioned to have that relaxation response. So it's just like Pavlov's dogs with the meat powder and the bell. Um, We're hoping that just by eating a strawberry, your, your body will remember and automatically relax itself. And, you know, it was just the very first study, but we did find evidence that Um, popping a strawberry does actually decrease your negative emotions. So it seems like that could be one way to harness the power of stress-induced eating without necessarily harming long-term metabolic health. Mm. Yeah, because that's often like the most common criticism. So in a lot of the like anti-diet intuitive eating space, they, they don't want you to pathologize emotional eating. They're like, you're sad. And so you want to have a cupcake, like let the cupcake soothe you and move on with your life. Um, but pathologizing it, uh, often like shaming yourself for it, so to speak, often just makes you want to eat more and like furthers the psychological suffering that you're experiencing. Whereas then you have the, like the diet camp who makes emotional eating this problem. And part of it is because like, oh, it's potentially going to lead to, like you said, poor metabolic health. So it's almost like maybe quote, like a little bit of emotional eating, if it does help take the edge off, so to speak, could be a good thing. But we're not disregarding the fact that uh, food does impact your metabolic health. Just somewhere in the middle there, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, as a scientist, I am exactly in that middle where I have these, you know, mostly medical model people who've been studying, you know, obesity, low calorie diets, their whole career who, you know, are in that camp, firmly in that camp that you're talking about. Um, But I also straddle the sort of um, body positivity justice, social justice kind of camp as well. And I must say most dietitians are in this camp too, um, that you were just exactly what you were saying about, you know, there are no good foods and bad foods. And like anytime you're tying up guilt and shame with eating, that's just going to lead down a bad road. So yeah, I, I totally agree that there's this tension there. So let's, let's try, let's dive into weight stigma. This is, it sounds like more of your specialty. So you, you published, you helped publish a paper titled how and why weight stigma drives the obesity epidemic and harms health, which is absolutely like not what most of our society thinks. In fact, most people, I, I would argue justify fat shaming under a like concern for health. I'm using air quotes there, like a concern for health. So we justify fat shaming. So I'm curious, can you explain how weight stigma drives the obesity epidemic 
And then I also want, um, going back to your, one of your earlier comments, do you believe obesity is an epidemic? And can you just explain your, your point of view and your perspective there? Sure. Um, and since it's a podcast, you can't see that in the title of that paper, epidemic was in quotes, because yes, you nailed it on the head. So I think that using obesity as a way to, to definitively label someone as healthy or unhealthy is really, really mistaken and misguided. And in fact, that's not even what the body mass index or BMI, that's not what it was invented to do in the first place. So we've gotten into this really weird spot where people think, oh, BMI of 30 and above, that means you're obese. So that means you're unhealthy. Whereas um, research shows, including some of my own research, that there are lots of people with a BMI of 30 or above who look perfectly healthy on all of their health markers. Um, and the flip side of that is true as well. So there are lots of people, and um, one of my papers quantifies how many millions, but it's a lot of millions, <laughs> a lot of millions of people um, who have a thinner BMI, a lower BMI, who actually show indications of poor health on lots of different kinds of markers. And so I think anytime we talk about the obesity epidemic, we're uh, automatically making this mistake of assuming that obesity equals bad health. Um, and I think that mistaken assumption, Kara, is where we go get things like weight stigma couched in concerns for people's health. So, you know, it's, it provides a pretty convenient and defensible way to express weight stigma for a lot of people, I think. So no, it's not that I don't like the way you look, I'm just really worried about your health. Um, well, the truth of the matter is you don't know what a person's health is just by looking at them. So, so that, you know, is logically, um, is a logical fallacy. So that said, let's pretend that weight is like a good, let's pretend that obesity is terrible for you and we should avoid weight gain at all costs, which is not at all what I think. But let's just pretend you're trying to talk to somebody who believes that because a lot of people do. Um, well, then you still shouldn't use weight stigma. You still shouldn't stigmatize people because when people experience weight stigma, all sorts of things happen that cause them to gain future weight. Um, and so if you're worried about people's weight gain, then let's not stigmatize them um, because it's gonna be counterproductive. And of course, what I'm saying is, but also let's not even worry about their weight in the first place. Let's just, you know, for social justice reasons, let's just get rid of weight stigma because we want to treat people nicely. So how do you get from weight stigma to weight gain? Well. Weight stigma, we've shown in my lab, is a stressor. And we talked earlier about all the different ways that stress can make you gain weight. So stress can make you eat more. Stress can make you eat, especially those high calorie, high sugar, high fat foods. Stress um, in the form of cortisol can lead to fat deposition. Um, stress can also um, uh, harm your sleep. And we know that sleep is so important for metabolic health. Also, when people experience weight stigma, they uh, lose their motivation to exercise. So you can imagine easily someone who's been stigmatized because of their weight. The last thing they are going to do is then put on some tight-fitting Lululemon and go to the gym, you know, and get 
you know, put themselves at risk of further stigmatization. It's not going to happen. We also know that weight stigma does some other health harming things. For example, I'm thinking about healthcare avoidance. So, you know, I've heard so many stories from um, heavier individuals that say they go to the doctor and they're just stealing themselves for a lecture on their weight. And maybe they've gone in for something completely unrelated, like a flu shot, you know, or um, the case of um, Rebecca Hiles, who was going in to the doctor because she had shortness of breath and the physician assumed it was because of her weight, just kept telling her to lose weight, when in fact it was lung cancer. And so people um, who have heavier bodies, they, they, see the, the doctor's office as a highly stigmatizing place, so why would you want to go there? And then if you're avoiding healthcare, then your diagnoses are getting later and later, which makes the course of the, the illness harder to treat. And so of course you're gonna have worse outcomes with a heavier BMI, simply because of weight stigma and not because of some you know, magical thing that happens when somebody has a larger body. Yeah. So hearing that, like, oh, the doctor's office being one of the potentially most stigmatizing places you can go, while I definitely think that just people in general life, like at at like parties or like you were talking about your experience in in Japan, it's just like very commonplace to say like, oh, you've lost weight, you've gained weight. I think to some degree it can be commonplace depending on who you're with like in the States, for example, like your, your parents or your friends or just your aunt and your uncle might casually say something. But I do think we also have some level of a socialization where it's like maybe not always okay to make comments on people's weights, but then you go to the doctor's office and it's like, well, it's for your, it's like for your own good, right? Like, I, I'm your doctor and I care about your health. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote stigmatize you, but talk to you about your weight because I'm trying to make you healthier. And then it prolongs, it potentially prolongs when their illnesses are caught, when the diagnosis is made. And that is, so what I'm hearing is that is actually could be why we see a correlation of higher negative health outcomes with higher body weights. It's not because the higher body weight caused it, but rather the stigma that prevented their illness from being caught the first time they went to the doctor instead of the 10th or the 15th or the 20th or whatever. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I feel like I should um, just play that clip for my students and <laughs> they'll get that beautiful summary you just did. Yeah, so I think we just assume that any bad health outcome is because that person has an obese body mass index when it could be all sorts of different things, one main pathway being, being um, stigmatization in the healthcare context. But I, I do wanna talk about something you just mentioned where like it's, it's starting, I think, to maybe be okay to call out instances of fat shaming. Like slowly, slowly I'm seeing, you know, people like Jamila Jamil, you know, and people in, in high, power, social power situations, starting to call out that it's not okay to be saying negative things about people's bodies. And to me, that is so encouraging because all the evidence up until now has shown that weight stigma is one of the um, 
people call it the last acceptable form of bias. And so people will say things about heavier people that, you know, you would never say about black individuals or women. And so I think that's been a real barrier to progress in this area. So I'm so encouraged to see this sea change happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you there. Like, I've heard that as well, that uh, like fat shaming or weight stigmas is, is like one of the last socially acceptable forms of, of discrimination. Can you give us a, like an, an example for anybody who's not fully on the court with us with what we're saying? Yeah, sure. So I think a person just needs to tell, ask themselves, okay, that, uh, that blank guy is so lazy and let's put in black there. That black guy is so lazy. Like, <gasps> like you would never say that right in polite company. Um, but that fat guy is so lazy. It's, it, it feels a little bit less gaspy. And I think that example in itself kind of, you know, like in a very vivid way, it exemplifies sort of the difference between acceptability in those two things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for that. So given all of the evidence that we have showing that people across the size spectrum, including those in the overweight or the obese categories on the BMI can be metabolically healthy, like you said, according to these other markers, why do you think fat shaming, weight stigma, and fat phobia are still so rampant? So we might've touched on this a little bit, but I'm not only curious like what your opinions are here maybe it's more of an opinion and less like a scientific answer um in society but also in the medical field like also at the doctor's office yeah definitely the first part of what i'm going to say is thoughts more than science a, a little bit of history and sociology thrown in i think um throughout history the people um who have the power political financial um, social power, like that's been what the societal ideal has been. And so way back when, when food was scarce, you know, the ruling elite had larger bodies because they could afford food. And in that time, you know, it was really in to be fat. Nowadays, where the people at the top of the socioeconomic status ladder tend to have thinner bodies, that is what is becoming, you know, encapsulized as like the ideal um, thing that we should all be striving for. So there's sort of deep structural power kind of issues at play here for, for why, why heavier bodies are stigmatized. Um, there are some evolutionary psychology accounts that say that in our evolutionary past, like to have a body that's that large meant something like very wrong was happening, whether it was some sort of infection or sort of somebody who's cheating and eating more of the tribe's food stores than they should be. Um, so, you know, those make sense to a certain extent, but I get a little bit nervous when we talk about like evolutionary reasons for weight stigma as if that's like something that is natural in our human past so we can't help it or do anything about it. I, I disagree with that the medical field. So, so there, there are reasons I think that range from like completely good hearted, good intentions, and even rational based on the data reasons. And then there are like more insidious reasons. So like 
weight or body mass index, BMI, and poor health are correlated. You talked about this earlier. So in general, the higher a person's BMI is, the more health problems you'll see. And so if you're uh, a clinician who has to make a decision on a person's treatment plan within what do people get like five minutes <laughs> with each patient nowadays, um, it makes sense to use BMI as one um, information source to quickly, quickly bring up a list of things that could be ailing that patient. So it's not like people are crazy for using BMI. It's certainly correlated with poor health. But I think every single listener listening can finish the sentence, which is correlation is not causation. And so just because body mass index is correlated with bad health, it doesn't mean that it's causing it. And I think the correlation fallacy is what it's called. It's like so tempting to, to assume that two things are causally related when, when they're correlated because, you know, it's like weight goes up, health goes down. And so obviously weight has to be causing the health problems. But, um, but like we've talked about in the past half hour, you know, it could be, no, it could be that it's weight stigma and so the person's avoiding healthcare and that's why their health is going down, not because, you know, having somehow having more fat cells on your body is causing this poor health. So I think physicians are engaging in the correlation fallacy to a certain extent, but they're using the information that is at their fingertips. So it's not that I don't understand the more like nefarious kind of reasons, um, a lot of obesity researchers, I don't think the general public understands the depths to which this is a problem. Um, many obesity researchers, especially those who are researching obesity treatments, have their own obesity clinics. So they are like financially um, invested in testing different diets, making sure to get people enrolled in their obesity treatments. And so there's like a financial conflict of interest there that I don't think is adequately addressed or, you know, made transparent to the public. And so I think for a lot of physicians who are, who want to legitimize this idea that you can change an obese BMI into a normal weight BMI, um, at the individual level through diet and exercise or whatever special diet they're testing in the moment, you know, I think, I think it's, there's an incentive there to make it seem like it's a person's responsibility to lose or gain weight. Um, because if it's not, then what have these physicians been researching this whole time? Thank you for that insight there into a little bit of that behind the scenes. You know, it's like, well, I'm making a lot of money studying this and I'm probably getting I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, money from like pharmaceutical companies to say, hey, test my weight loss drug, for example. Okay. And so it's like, I financially benefit from this essentially mis piece of misinformation out in the world that not only that our weight is in our control, but that the, the, the fat cells on your body are, are the cause. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious in, as a researcher, I specifically wanted to ask you this, what role does, con like, what is confirmation bias and how does that impact the outcomes that we see in weight related research? 
Yeah, confirmation bias is a very interesting sort of tick that our brains have that I can't quite get rid of. <laughs> and so confirmation bias means once you have an idea, all of a sudden, all you can see is evidence that supports that idea. So I think the reason why you're bringing it up here is that the, the, the idea that we have in our heads is that fat is bad. And so from that point on, um, you will sort of discount or maybe not even notice, might not even come into your brain for processing um, evidence to the contrary. So you'll, your brain will sort of glide over all the thin people you know who have lots and lots of health issues. And then it'll, um, you know, immediately see and glom onto a heavy person who might have diabetes, for example, and say, oh, look, see, there's some evidence. Um, fat is bad for you. And so I think it's the confirmation bias is something that is a very sort of basic bias that all humans have. And it's, it's really hard to notice and get rid of. And so I think, yeah, I think that could be one reason why we're seeing this deep level of, of weight stigma and equating heavier bodies with poorer health. So going back to like, like not only having this confirmation bias, but having these doctors who have a financial investment in keeping this sort of narrative alive, do you think there's any other reasons why not only like doctors and medical research, but the society, like why they're so resistant to this idea that um, your weight's not completely in your control and that you can quote, get healthier without weight loss. Like what other reasons why, why would, why people would be so resistant to what your research shows? Cause you have a, a lot of like research, solid research, concrete evidence for, you know, the problems with weight stigma for how you can be healthy across the size spectrum. So why, are there other reasons as to why people just like don't want to believe it or accept it? Yeah, it's such a good question because once you throw that away, it's so freeing because weight is so hard to change and weight is so hard to keep off. So it's really kind of a mystery to me. I'm like, don't you want to know that weight is like not the important thing? <laughs> like the number on the scale, you don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, I think one reason is weight is visible, so it's easy to see. It's hard or it's actually impossible to see somebody's, somebody's blood pressure just by looking at them or their blood glucose or their triglycerides. Um, and so I think that's one reason why it's perpetuated. Um, but, you know, once you move away from this weight-based framework, then you can move towards focusing on things that can actually change today. So um, eating more fruits and vegetables, you know, uh, moving your body a little bit more, um, managing your stress levels. So we've talked so much about stress. Um, there, are, there are things you can do to decrease your stress levels. That's going to improve your health. And then sleep. Sleep is a big one too. So if you could change immediately those four things, then... I think that regardless of what happens to the number on the scale, you're steadily working your way towards health. Um, and I think that's, that's actually a very liberating message that you don't need to worry about this thing that's hard to change and comes right back. Yeah. I'm curious, what do you think has to happen in our world for the narrative to shift, for 
what you have learned in your research, like what you stand for, like weight stigma being a problem, weight stigma not making people healthier. Um, what do you think would need to change in our world for that to to sort of become the dominant narrative as opposed to what the dominant narrative is now? Yeah, I spend so much time thinking about this because, you know, the past 10 years of my research have been documenting all the terrible things that weight stigma does. And I'm like, okay, can we move on to solutions yet? Um, but it's really hard. So a lot of interventions that we know work to decrease racism, for example, sexism, when you sort of adapt them for the weight setting, they don't quite seem to work as well. They might work a tiny bit, but not consistently. And so we're kind of out of ideas currently. The other thing is, I think if you think about smoking, like what happened with smoking? Suddenly smoking became like, from like the coolest thing on earth to like kind of gross. And so I'm trying to think like, how did that happen? And I think one huge lever we could push is public policy. So when smoking was, became illegal in restaurants and bars, then suddenly like it, it was a signal from the government that this is not a normal thing to do. If you're gonna do it, you need to go out back into the shady alley, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so I think policy could go a long way. In most states, it's perfectly legal to discriminate uh, based on the, a person's size. So um, that's something that we could change easily. And I think once there's sort of that widespread awareness and actual consequences behind weight stigma, I think that could go a long way. But, you know, this making fat shaming not cool thing needs to happen through celebrities and thought leaders and powerful people who people listen to. Unfortunately, I don't think it can really come from academics like me being like, look at the evidence, everybody. <laughs> you know, like, you need to stop this because the data shows. So, you know, I think it needs to be multi-pronged policy, thought leaders, you know, podcasts like yours, I think are going to go a long way towards, towards trying to move this needle. Thank you for that. The last little bit about the pod, the potty pod. <laughs> um, so going, one of the last things you had said of like, okay, well, weight's not like, oh, well, we have all these things showing us that weight's not in our control. Often the statistics that's thrown around is that 90 to 95% of diets don't work, meaning they, they don't lead to long-term sustainable weight loss. So why do you think that for like five to 10% of people diets quote, do work? Like, how do we explain that? But I also, I also think it's worth noting that like, if, if like a medication only worked 5% of the time or 10% of the time, we probably wouldn't put that medication on the market, right? So like, even though it works five to 10% of the time, it's still sort of like statistically not relevant, correct? Yes, so yeah. <laughs> um, although our, our data shows two thirds of dieters gain back more weight than they lost. 90 to 95 sounds high to me, but regardless of what the actual number is, for the vast majority of people, diets do not work for long-term sustainable weight loss. So what is going on with that five to 10%, as you say? Um, there is actually a study called the National Weight Loss Control Registry run by Rena Wing out of Brown. And they've studied this group of people who have managed to lose, I think it's 5% of their weight loss and kept it off for at least a year. And 
some things are behavioral. I think they um, weigh themselves a lot and they have breakfast every day. I can't remember what the exact findings were out of that, out of the registry. But, you know, I think about this a lot too, because a lot of my um, academic colleagues are like, why are you studying weight stigma? In fact, I was told probably I shouldn't study this before tenure because people, you know, are, didn't think, they thought it was kind of a frivolous area of research. And I, I can't tell you the number of times people have been like, well, I've gone on a diet and, you know, look at me, I've lost 20 pounds and kept it off. To which I say, yeah, but you have a PhD and, you know, you have tenure, like you're a high socioeconomic status and you're super smart and you have resources. And so like for you, maybe it could be easy, but I think for the vast majority of people who don't have that kind of privilege, I think it's difficult. So I'm talking about people who work more than one job, like how are they supposed to get to the gym? Um, people who don't have money to go to Whole Foods, like can you really blame them for um, feeding their family till their tummies are full, you know, the best way that they know how. And so I think that those are the things that enable a person to keep the weight off. I do have one study in a group of people from the Calorie Restriction Society. Um, these are people who in, in my study had kept, had restricted their calories severely on average for about a decade. So every single person in that study um, was one of these successful dieters. And so we studied them to see like what, what sets them apart. And the things that immediately were evident is that they tend to be white, um, they tend to be older, they tend to be male, they tend to be incredibly highly educated, and they have certain personality characteristics that predispose them to be able to make long-term changes. And so I don't think that that helps people who think dieting is amazing and everyone should do it like okay so we need to turn everyone into like a wealthy white male older who with high iq you know it, it's just not um a viable solution if you're trying to get people to diet which you know i don't think we should be in the first place but you know those the, that select few is truly a, a select um group with with very unique characteristics i, I don't think we can generalize to everybody that's so interesting. I've also recently learned maybe in the last like year or so that it wasn't until like the 1980s that it became required to have like women, particularly women of color in medical research studies that before that all of our research was literally just white men. And so like the data yeah. possibly couldn't be representative of the population if you're only studying white men. And so like everything up until the 80s, just like isn't applicable to most of the population. Yeah, it started when um, that drug, anti-nausea drug thalidomide came on the market. Um, and so thalidomide actually caused birth defects. Um, and so that led to uh, women getting excluded, any woman of childbearing age getting excluded from these trials, which an unintended consequence, as you're mentioning is, you know, that so much of our medical data is based on men. Um, yeah, and if you look at who the participants are in studies, overwhelmingly it's white individuals. So 
it's really tough. How are we supposed to have medicine that works for everyone when we don't have data on everyone? Yeah. So one of the last things that you had said, and last question, and we'll wrap this up. You had said, I don't think we should be recommending for people, we shouldn't recommend them to diet, something along those lines. So to wrap this up, why do you think we shouldn't be putting people on diets? Well, because my studies show that it's a stressor and stress hormones, when you have too much of them, are no good for you, including ironically causing weight gain. Um, I also think that uh, it just makes no sense to recommend something that does not achieve the goal that you want it to achieve. So if what you want is long-term weight loss, dieting is just not going to get you there. And also, I think when we talk about dieting, it automatically sort of puts our focus on weight as the end goal. And I think that is mistaken, A, because it doesn't, it doesn't tell us uh, definitively about a person's health, and also because it's really hard to change. And so that's why I think when you sort of push the focus away from dieting towards things that you can change, behaviors uh, that will actually change your health. So eating more fruits and veggies, moving around more, getting a handle on your stress and sleeping better. Uh, I think that is definitely the way to go for a way more peaceful and productive path toward health. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it's, it's a lot of us, I think don't even necessarily want quote, to be healthier. We want to be thinner so we can avoid being victims of weight stigma and weight discrimination. And we might say like, oh, I'm dieting to get healthier, but really we're trying to assimilate and we're trying to like avoid being the victims of stigma and discrimination. And I think until larger body people are treated better in our society, I don't think we're going to have people who aren't going to try to make weight loss occur through any means, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's the sad truth about it is you need the societal change, which is really hard along with, you know, all of the actual work that the stigmatized group has to do to, to gain health. So yeah, it's a tricky situation. Yeah. Uh, Dr. T, Janet, thank you so much for coming on. It was such an honor and a pleasure to speak to you. And I know so many people are going to get value out of this episode. If people want to learn more about you, read more of your research, where should they head to learn more? They can go to dishlab.org. We have summaries of each of my studies in, in, in lay language that's easy to understand. Um, and there they can get all our social media handles. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wait, don't go yet. Did you like today's episode? Did you get a lot out of it? If you did, I would be so grateful if you would leave a ratings and review on iTunes. That really helps keep the podcast going. It lets me know you're listening and enjoying it. If you don't have iTunes or you're not sure how to do that, then share the pod in your Instagram stories. Be sure to tag me or share it with a friend who you think would get a lot out of this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening and I will see you guys all soon. I love you.